Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Joining us today on the show, John Kasman. John, welcome, and thanks for joining us. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. Thank you for having me. Uh, Before we get into it, here's a little bit about John. John started his real estate investing by just house hacking a duplex. Fast forward to today, John now controls a portfolio worth over $58 million as a general partner. Very impressive, and I can't wait to hear about that process and journey. So with that being said, John, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Yeah, so I have a marketing background, so I spent a lot of time just really understanding how to build brands, how to identify opportunities to um, connect with consumers. Uh, from a real estate standpoint, um, started with the house hack, you know, like many people, uh, was always interested in real estate, just didn't quite know how to break into it, and house hacking made a ton of sense. Now, I had never heard that term house hacking before. But living in one unit, renting out the other units definitely made a lot of sense, especially in a market like Chicago. So we started there. From there, we kind of, you know, bought another property, a three-unit building. Uh, we, that did really well. So we bought an eight-unit building. Uh, just kind of continued to grow. But one thing that happened to us is we kind of ran out of our own money because we never sold any of those properties. We had a lot of equity, but we were saving up our own money every time we bought a new property. So at that point, I kind of learned more about working with other people's money Uh, passive investing and really, you know, kind of growing and scaling from there, which kind of led us into more larger scale apartment buildings. Fantastic. Perfect. So why apartment buildings versus any other asset class out there? Uh, I mean, for me, apartments just make sense. I understand multifamily. I understand people need a place to live. Um, You know, you see it, you know, I can walk around and understand it. You, you know, as a uh, consumer, if you think about it, Um, I was a renter for a very long time, you know, I rented for a number of years. So I understood that dynamics pretty well. And I understood what it was like being on the other side of those rent checks. Um, So why not switch gears? Uh, I mean, I'm certainly I'm certainly sure that there are people who are crushing it when it comes to retail or strip centers or um, self storage or other things like that. But to me, they seem like they have a larger learning curve than apartments. Um, and apartments, you could start very small with a two unit building technically, um, and scale up to a 10 unit building or a 20 unit or a hundred unit building. Um, the premise, the context is all the same. You're just talking about larger numbers. And for me, because of what I was doing professionally in marketing, working with large budgets, working with large corporations, hundred million dollar campaigns, I understood how to manage large budgets and large numbers. It was really just a matter of understanding the scale that comes with that versus, you know, two unit building, building you have to do everything yourself. Um, on a 200 unit building, you're hiring a full team that's going to oversee it. It's the same work. I mean, in theory, right? You're just doing a lot more of it instead of having one repair call a month or every three or four months. 
you probably have one every day <laughs> for something, but that's why you have a full-time maintenance guy to take care of those kind of things. Uh, so it's really just a matter of uh, understanding the scale of it. And that kind of made sense to me. It was very natural. Um, certainly sure that there are people doing it with other asset classes, but multifamily and apartments just seemed like the natural fit for us. Got it. And so you said you had a marketing background. Were you doing this on the side or did you leave that position and pursue real estate full-time right off the bat? Yeah, on the side. I mean, I think that it's something that you can start passively. You can start on the side. You can, I mean, there are a lot of ways to get into it. I mean, whether you want to, um, like I said, a house hack or a lot of people start with turnkey or passive investing. So I don't think it's something that requires you to quit your job and go do a full time, especially if you have a high paying job or if you have a job that has some flexibility to it. Um, if you can create a lifestyle, create an environment where you can step inside and do things. Um, you can certainly start and continue to scale while maintaining that full-time job. Yep. Okay. So you mentioned house hacking. So what are some of your hacks to find the best areas for real estate investing? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of great tips, right? Um, so we have talked to a lot of different guests and it's something that we try to understand is how are other people doing that? Cause I spent a ton of time really learning how, you know, how do I find the best places to invest and looking at, you know, market trends and talking to brokers and other investors. And I will say that there are a couple of telltale signs. First of all, um, understand the market that you're in from a high level standpoint and what drives it. Is it schools? Is it transportation? What are the employers? Where's the nightlife? Where are jobs going? So you want to understand some of those different things. And from there, you can start to look at a couple hacks. In a market like Chicago, transportation is going to be key. If you want to attract a great quality tenant, you need to be in a place where they can get on the train line fairly quickly. So we follow those train lines and we make sure we understand where they're at, where's development growing. Um, you can start to look at the hot neighborhoods. You can look at just Google top places to live in whatever market or whatever city you're in and don't invest in that city because or that market because that market may be a little hot by the time the presses are writing about it. But if you go just adjacent to it and you look at the next neighborhood over that still carries the same characteristics and qualities that are appealing to people in that main area, that's a great way to find the path of progress. Just move a step ahead and you'll be right there when the group starts to, to move over there. Um, another thing to look at is start looking for retail centers. Um, in particular, I'm looking at things like a Chipotle or a Starbucks or um, you know, those kind of outlets, coffee shops, you know, if you're looking for those kind of things, that's a great sign that, you know, there's development happening, there's growth happening and let those big boys do the research. Let those companies that have all the dollars to do all the market analysis, figure out where people are going to be. But depending on the asset class you're looking at, let's just call a, a class B where people are making anywhere between say 50 K and 80 K. If you're looking at an asset class like that, well, guess what? Starbucks love that person too. Chipotle loves that person too. Um, maybe not so much the the McDonald's that might be just a little bit lower, but McDonald's not that bad. But if you could find a Chipotle and figure out where they're opening up a restaurant or uh, those types of establishments, um, that's a great way to figure out, okay, there's a lot of growth or, or progress happening here because they're only opening up in those types of locations. So I certainly cheat there. Um, if there is a driver of an area, let's just say there's a great park or there's a great university or a big time employer there, um, don't just buy because that employer is there or that park is there. Try to find out what's happening. Is it growing? If it's a university, uh, is enrollment up? 
you want to understand the path of that organization or that venue. If it's a hospital, you know, are they expanding? Are they adding a wing? Um, or are they laying people off? So you just want to find, make sure that wherever you're investing, you want to see growth, you want to see progress and use those cues, but don't just say, okay, well, hey, this school's here, so let's just buy there. Sometimes those schools aren't growing. And right now where education is key and you see a lot of universities growing, um, that's a great way to know that there's going to be continued investment in an area. So I will certainly look at what those drivers are and then try to dig just another level deeper to understand what's really happening with those institutions. Yeah, I love that. I was listening to another podcast today where they were talking about the crime level and this particular investor is investing in an area where the crime level is a little bit higher than he would normally like. But his explanation was when you look 10 years back, the crime has improved by 100%. So that's moving in the right direction. If you look at a property that is in a location next to a business, kind of like you said, that is above the national, or yeah, if the population is above the national average, but it's been declining, it doesn't really matter if it's above the national average at that point. You know, you need to look backwards at the trends and really see which way it's going. So I, I love that you said that. So um, what are some of the cons of uh, apartment investing? A lot of people always talk about all the benefits of it, and, and obviously there are tons of benefits, but what are some of the cons of apartment investing? That's a great question, and I, I will tell you, I think you might be the first person to ever ask that question, um, and it is a phenomenal question. So I'm going to answer it for um, both sides, and when I say both sides, you have the operator or sponsor, someone who's actually actively managing the apartment investment. And then we do apartment syndication where we bring in passive investors. So um, for those folks who are listening more from a passive standpoint, I'll, I'll talk about it from that perspective too, if that's okay with you. Perfect. So for us, one of the questions I got previously was, well, why did you go this route versus just building your own portfolio? Well, as I told you, I ran out of my own money, right? I mean, that's, that's really the honest truth is, um, sure, I'd love to own a thousand units by myself, but they cost money <laughs> and I didn't have the money to buy a thousand units by myself. So one of the cons is you are working with other investors in a space. If you are going to syndicate or start working on a larger scale, you may need to work on bringing in other investors. So one of the challenges you have is one, just finding those investors, um, staying in touch with them, raising the capital you need for a deal, um, making sure that you know you have people committed. You're going to have people who are questioning every aspect of the deal. Now, there are some pros and some cons with that. It's always good to get another set of eyes on a deal. But when you get questioned on every single aspect of the deal, it can get tiresome, right? So I think you have to ask yourself, do you really want to be in that seat where someone is questioning every single aspect, every line item, every assumption you've made? You know, I get questions about our insurance plans. Um, I get questions about what happens if, you know, uh, immigration laws change. So, I mean, things that, you know, I'm pretty thorough, I think. And I mean, sometimes I get questions that are like, damn, I didn't even think of that. So now I need to go and study what immigration has done for Texas population over the last 10 years, you know? So I just find myself doing these like mini case studies out of the blue based on a question that I get, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing that could be a, a, a con if, if you are in an active seat. Um, another thing from a passive standpoint is that you are giving up control, which is why you get these questions, which is why I take the time to answer them very seriously. Because someone's looking at making a $100,000 or $50,000 or whatever investment with us into this deal, and they're trusting that we've done 
everything possible to make sure that the deal's a solid deal and protect their money. And I can absolutely respect that and I appreciate that. So I don't um, take those questions with uh, any challenges. I just see them as, okay, someone has a question, let's go answer your question. Um, but with that said, from a passive person, you, you don't have the control. So when you're investing, once you, you know, write that check or deposit the money, you have essentially given all control over the operations and the investment to the person who's the lead. So at that point, you can suggest you can do whatever you want to do, but, you know, you really don't have any power in most cases in a deal like that. So that's certainly a con if you're someone who, you know, likes to be in control or wants to understand what's happening. Um, you are really um, relying on the person you're operating with to make great decisions, keep you informed of what's happening, being honest, being transparent. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people don't like to deliver bad news or, you know, let people know, hey, you know what, we didn't hit the, the return numbers we we're expecting for this quarter. Um, but you want to find someone who will be honest with you. And also, more importantly than being honest, who is going to be proactive and say, hey, we didn't hit it this quarter for this reason. Here's what we're doing about it. We don't expect this to be an issue going forward. And if we do, here's our other, you know, we got two, three backup plans, but won't be an issue, right? You want someone who's going to address that issue and really take the asset, take the performance of it, make it a priority and make sure they deliver. So, I mean, I think the biggest con is control from that standpoint, if you are the uh, passive investor and if you are an operator, it's the fact that you have to answer to your investors, whether you want to or not. Tell us your process of building sound strategic partnerships and what those partnerships mean to you. Yeah, great question. I mean, um, I think it starts with conversations. Um, I think it's really important to understand goals, to understand uh, alignment of interest um, and get to know people. You know, if, if someone's out there just trying to make a quick buck, it's probably not somebody we want to really work with in any capacity, uh, even as a passive investor, because our deals really aren't get rich quick deals. Um, they are get rich slow deals. And it's just not as sexy. I mean, I know a lot of flippers who are crushing it and it looks good and you can make your IG look amazing because you're showing this these amazing before and afters. Before and afters for apartments do not look that amazing unless you're doing the exteriors. And even still, it's like, there's a big ass building that was bait. Now it's gray. Right? So, I mean, it's just not super sexy, but the returns are. Um, and it's, it's not startup. It's not, it's just not a, it's not sexy in the sense that the numbers that we put on paper are not going to be eye popping um, by many investors standpoint. Like you don't run into people saying, Oh man, I invested in this value add apartment deal. And you know, I put 10,000 in and I made 150,000. Like that just doesn't happen where you could do that on other deals. You can do that on a wholesale. You can do that on a flip. You can do that in other capacities. But I would say, you know, with multifamily, it is, in my opinion, a more secured asset if you are doing value add, where property is 85, 90% occupied, it's already cash flowing, and you're going in with the business plan to simply maximize the returns. Uh, so for me, it really reduces the risk. Um, and that's the most important thing for me to sleep at night is knowing that, hey, with my investors, we're, we have money coming in. And we're essentially trying to go from, you know, making a 10% return to a 12% return or whatever the case may be. That makes me sleep at night a little bit easier than uh, some of the other deals. Um, so you, your original question was about uh, partnerships. So when we're looking for partners that we might go in on a deal together, we're looking for honesty. We're looking for transparency, um, which I think go hand in hand with honesty. 
Um, we are looking for intelligence. We are looking for someone who is resourceful and the ability to solve challenges. And we're looking for someone who challenges us, challenges us to be the best versions of ourselves we can be, challenges us to think, challenges us to bring our A game every day. Um, we want partners that make us better at what we do. So I think those are kind of the, the five things that we look for um, to really find partners that we want to do business with because at the end of the day, iron sharpens iron and we just want to be with good people. And if we're around good people all the time, it elevates our games and allows us to do better deals. Yeah. Great. Recently you hosted a three part series for passive investors on your podcast show um, on what they should look for in passive real estate investments. What were your key takeaways from that series? Yeah, good, good point. Um, so it's a three part series. Um, essentially what I wanted to do was really help passive investors learn how to look at deals. Most of the time they look at deals and honestly, the first two parts of it was not to look at the deal. Part one is about the sponsor, um, the operator. It's about understanding who is the person you're going to be working with. Uh, we just talked about partnerships and character and all those different things, but really understanding that does this person have the skill set to execute what they are projecting? Um, you know, a lot of times, especially for newer operators who may not have gone through a full cycle, they may not just have the track record to say, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years and here's all the millions of dollars I've made for my investors. Um, that doesn't mean that they're not a good operator that they can't deliver. But obviously, if you don't have that track record, there's going to be more questions. So you want to look at their experience. You want to look at um, what other business experience they have. What other proof points do they have to show you that they can absolutely execute the business plan based on what's been projected. Um, the second part is about the market. So we talk a lot about how to find the best places to invest. But if you are a passive investor, someone's already bringing you a specific market or they're telling you, hey, here are the markets we invest in. So it's for you to understand, are you comfortable with that? And to learn about what you need to know, because sometimes it's not just about the hottest markets. It's not just about being in Dallas or just being in, you know, the hot Texas, Florida, Georgia markets. There are people who are crushing it in all different cities across the country. So if you are looking for investment opportunities, it's about understanding uh, what's happening in that market and how do you adjust the, the deal and the underwriting based on that. And then from an underwriting standpoint or the deal, I think it really just comes down to understanding what some of the potential red flags could be. You know, when you're looking at uh, someone's underwriting or a deal that they presented to you, you want to know that this person is being conservative and it just gives you a little bit more tips of how to ensure someone's being conservative. Um, so there are a couple of things you can look at that help. I think one thing we like to look at is if it's a value add play. Now, again, if it's a different strategy, I, I don't know how to look at it, but if it's value add, um, you're going to have more um, stabilization loss over the course of the first year, your economic vacancy is going to be higher because you're simply not going to quickly turn and fulfill fill those units because you want to take the time to renovate those units, right? So if you have someone leave, you're going to take two, three weeks or whatever time frame it takes to go in, renovate the unit, lease it, show it, and get a new renter, renter in there. So because you're doing that, you're going to have more time where you're not getting rent because you're going to come in and take over and try to raise rents. You're going to have more people leave. And when those people leave, you're not going to fill it right away, you're going to renovate those units. So the economic vacancy is going to increase. So typically speaking, that year one income is probably not going to be that much more than the current NOI. So that's one thing I look at immediately is, hey, what are their year one projections um, in relation to the current operations? If I see that year one NOI is 500,000, year two is 510,000, 
Um, and the current NOI is like 350 and it's a value add play. I know someone screwed up in their underwriting, right? I know that they are not being conservative. I know that they're being aggressive and they just took rents and said, all right, rents can get here and vacancy is 5%. Let's go. So, I mean, those are the kind of things you want to look at and not to get super technical and in the weeds, but um, I think most passive investors are not going to go line by line by line because you are trying to trust the operator. And I think it's more important to spend the time to get to know the operator and understand the way they think than to pull out the red pen and just go line by line with what they did. Because ultimately, you need to trust that person. But I think there are, with that said, I do think you need three or four proof points to make sure that someone is being conservative in a deal that they're presenting to you. And there are just a couple things like that that can easily allow you to look at it and get a good feel for if this person is being accurate with their assumptions or if they're being aggressive just to make the numbers work. Is there a rule of thumb you follow from uh, you know, past 12 months to first year performance, typically on a value add play? Uh, it not really just because it depends on what the value add is. Yeah. I mean, you sometimes might have a big loss to lease where, Hey, this person's filled all the units. So it's 97% occupied, but rents are all a hundred dollars below market. Right. So in that case, if you're not going to go in and do a big renovation, you may just decide, Hey, look, we're just going to go up and start telling, you know, uh, anybody whose lease expired, we're just going to let them know rents increase 50 to $75. Well, if that doesn't cost you any money as an operator from a renovation standpoint, that's those, that's easy money to make. You might go in and implement a rub system where you are now billing utility or the, the utility costs directly to the residents. So if you need to go in and implement sub metering or anything like that, then there's a, there's an expense up front. But if, if you're not going to do that, and if you're just going to do, um, kind of a straight billing system or whatever, it may not cost you as much money. So it really just depends. So it's hard to say, hey, it should be the X amount or anything like that. But I would say you should look at what's currently happening happening at the property. And then what's the business plan to be executed? And then just making sure that it all feels logical. If someone's going to renovate units, then like I said, you're going to have more vacancies. If someone says, hey, listen, we're not going to renovate anything. Rents are just super below market. We're just going to crank up rents and we're going to start doing it aggressively or we're going to start doing it, you know, at this time frame. Then you could boost the NOI fairly quickly if it's all those kind of things. But like I said, most of the time you are doing some sort of renovation. Right. Okay. And if you don't mind, can we uh, link your show into the show notes on those three passive investor shows? I think that'd be awesome value for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually a blog post, but we'll definitely make sure we um, we link to the blog on those uh, those posts. Okay. Awesome. Perfect. So you mentioned the sponsor being a key part of that due diligence and you already kind of touched on it when you're talking about the control piece, but what if you do get involved with a sponsor that, you know, is just not performing at the level that he promised you? Is there anything that you can do at the point that you're in the deal, the deal's operating? Can you do anything from a passive investor standpoint? Well, I mean, I think the first thing you do want to do is talk to the operator, right? Um, you know, hopefully you have a relationship with this person where you can understand. I mean, most of the time they'll know, right? I mean, it's the, the operator, all the good operators, people that I know, uh, if it's not operating at, at a high level, um, they're probably going to have some anxiety about that. Um, so I think the first thing is just have a conversation. You know, is this person being upfront? Are they, are they explaining to you what's happening? Do they seem like they have a hold of it? Or is it something else going on where they're just, you know, maybe they're a megalomaniac and they just don't care. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, but in that case, what you may want to do is start with a conversation. If the conversation doesn't seem to get the desired results, um, what you probably want to do 
is um, start to really look at the deal, understand what your options are, what their business plan is going to be. Is this something where um, you were prom? I don't want to say promised. If you, uh, if you, the projections were, let's say a 9% annual return and the returns are only 7%. Well, I mean, sometimes that happens, right? I mean, these are projections. Um, so I say, I would say in that case, um, I don't want to say suck it up, but you know, if it's a 7% return and the person is doing everything they can, um, then I don't think there's much that I would recommend to do. Um, if the person is absolutely not performing for various reasons, I would certainly make suggestions. So let's just say, um, if we've, if they keep complaining about property management, or if there seems to be a property management issue, obviously, I think it makes sense to say, well, listen, why don't you look at replacing property management? I think you could certainly push for that. Um, what you would probably have to do if the situation became more serious than that, um, and you didn't have the rapport, this person just wasn't responding to the conversations, you probably need to refer to your operating agreement. Um, anytime you're doing a syndication deal like this, um, there is an operation agree- operating agreement that really details out what happens when it comes to these kind of decisions, um, who has voting rights. Sometimes if there are other general partners involved, they may have voting rights um, and they might have the ability to do anything from um, changing um, how decisions are made, making voting calls. And then in some instances, they can actually replace the sponsor if they're completely inept and not delivering. Um, so I, you know, don't know anyone personally who's had to be replaced. Um, but I have heard some horror stories where um, that was certainly an option that was on the table. So I think you want to look at your operating agreement at that point, understand what you can and cannot do. You may want to, um, you know, uh, have a serious conversation, maybe even with an attorney involved at that point. But I think that would be your last resort. Um, and that would only be if, there were kind of serious issues going on with the execution of the property. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. So I think Lolita now is going to take us into our final four questions. All right, John, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So what is the one tool in real estate investing that you could not do without? Oh, that's a great question. I would say, you know, we, um, our, our business is really comes down to, uh, connecting investors to deals. So I would say right now it is um, everything I do to connect with my investors, but I'm going to primarily say um, pipe drive is a platform that I'm using right now for my CRM system. Um, so I'm going to use pipe drive. Fantastic. We'll look into that because we're looking for one as well. Yep. Yeah. I'm still fairly new. I just, I was doing a lot of Excel documents and I have mm-hmm. like four different trackers and mm-hmm. I, it gets confusing and overwhelming. Yeah, so I just I just put it all in pipe drive, and I'm still in the early stages, but I'll let you know how it's turning out for me. Okay. All right, great. Uh, can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far, and what is the main takeaway for our listeners? Yeah, we talked a little, a little bit about passive investing, and um, I would say I entered a flip, a flip deal as a passive investor, and I um, gave all the power over to the general contractor, and in short, um, the deal just was not working very well um, at all. A lot of the things that were promised or that were sold up front that we saw and made sense when we initially got into the deal. But we also had some red flags that we pointed out and we try to be proactive in managing that. But he was not very receptive to that feedback. Nonetheless, that deal ended up falling apart and we ended up having to do everything ourselves just to salvage it. He kind of disappeared. So I would say the the big lesson there is um, – if you see red flags and you call it out, just really go, it goes back to the person. 
um, make sure you're partnering with people who value your opinion. Mm -hmm. um, because similar to the question that Kyle asked me before, if you have something going wrong with the deal and this person doesn't want to hear you or they're not taking action on what you're saying, that's a huge red flag. And you can start to see that just in general conversation. So I would ask questions that will help uncover, does this person respect me and do they value my opinion? Um, when I ask what may be a silly question, do they take the time to answer it or do they brush mm -hmm. me off? Do they tell me, oh, that's just, don't worry about that, right? If they tell you, don't worry about that, and that's all their answer is, I would run. I would run from anyone who tells you not to worry about anything that you are worried about or have a question about because mm -hmm. they mean it means that they don't they don't value or they're not validating your concerns. However crazy, stupid, or petty it might be, if it's a question you have, I'm sure it's coming from a real place, and I would feel the the need to answer it objectively. And if it's something you shouldn't worry about, I should be able to explain why you don't need to worry about it. Great advice. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Um, I think I need to continue to just connect with uh, more investors, you know, just continue to build our Invader da database, um, finding great deals and finding great partnerships. So it's more of the same, more of what we're doing is just doing it at a larger scale. So we continue to grow and um, help more people throughout the process. I mean, there are a lot of people who are looking for great passive investment opportunities so they can continue doing what they're doing. And, you know, I think, you know, it's on us to find more of those deals and find more of those people and just pull everything together. And lastly, where can people find out more about you? So you can check out my podcast called Target Market Insights. It is uh, pretty much everywhere where podcasts are. Um, you can check out our website, casmancapital.com. You can email me at john at casmancapital um, and john at casmancapital.com. Uh, and those are probably the best places to find me. Great stuff. So much value. Uh, super informative. And I'm already taking notes on the strategies that you're mentioning. So I'll definitely have to tune into your podcast. So I'm caught up on market tips and insight and just what you're currently up to. So can't wait. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show, John. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.